everybody. I think, according to my watch, it's a little after five. I'm pulling back on as well. So I think we shall make a start. My name is Annette Sudermann, for those of you who've not met me yet. Um, and I'm currently the course director of the Masters in Evidence-Based Healthcare. And as part of that, this week we're running a course on diagnosis and screening. And for that, I have asked my very lovely colleague, Phil, um, to come along and talk to us about the work they've been doing, talking to industry, thinking about how to perhaps implement diagnostic tests or strategies. And he's come up with this very great and interesting title around Beyond Accuracy, Evidence Gaps and Unintended Consequences. So um, just one quick note. Uh, I had somebody who left a coat in the other room that we were working in. So if that's any one of you, go and have a chat with Robin afterwards. She can let you have access to that room again. All right. So, Phil, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thanks, Annette, for uh, inviting me to come and speak to the group. So, it's actually about just over four years ago that I was sitting where a lot of you were, actually. I sort of, uh, when I first started in the department, I uh, took the course as sort of a bit of an introduction to sort of uh, diagnostics in primary care, essentially, to give me a bit of context. And so, there's been quite a lot of water under the bridge since then. And um, so, when Annette asked me to give this talk, I was quite interested to think about things I've learned in the process of working with industry for the last few years and um, that's where I came up with this idea of thinking about beyond accuracy because one of the things you'll probably learn later in the talk hopefully is that uh, what we find is there's a very big big emphasis by the diagnostics industry and sort of innovators developing diagnostic tests on very very simple metrics but they don't always they're only a very very small part of the story okay um, I think probably another title I could have given given it was also sort of uh, observations of a gatekeeper because that's also been part of my role really is that we've as we've been sort of approached by diagnostic uh, companies to come and talk with our organization I've been the person who's generally had to triage out a lot of the companies to make sure that the people we actually talk to are probably the ones who are developing things which are realistic Okay, so um, just have to give a declaration because we're funded by the NIHR and that's basically that these observations that I'm going to present today are my own, they're not necessarily those of the NHS, the NHR, uh, NIHR or the Department of Health. Okay, so, uh, so if I'm rude about certain things then uh, it's, all, it's all my own, own responsibility. Okay, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about the origin of the NHR diagnostic infrastructure. So a number of years ago, um, the NHR, I think, recognised that there was a bit of a problem uh, getting technologies, um, diagnostic technologies and other technologies into, into the healthcare system. And really it boils down to a couple of things, a couple of very general barriers, and they're both around evidence, really. One is that generally... A lot of uh, diagnostics and technologies fail because there's in insufficient evidence of efficacy, acceptability and cost effectiveness to persuade stakeholders. So, you know, we're moving beyond that sort of the simple metrics again there. And that really we get this very poor uptake, uh, you know, of, of these technologies when there is a shortfall between the capability and expectations. So this is what we call the technology needs mis mismatch. So somebody has an idea of what they want to develop as a diagnostic. It doesn't necessarily meet with what the clinician's expectations might, might be, the end user might be at the end of the day. So the NIHR funded originally in 2013 four of what they called the diagnostic evidence cooperatives. So we were one in Oxford, um, we, there was another one up in Leeds, another in Newcastle-upon-Tyne and the other one in Imperial College London and so we all had slightly different remits. So we're based in the Department of Primary Care so our focus was really on primary care, suitable public health, suitable diagnostics um, 
and that generally restricts kind of what we do down to the point of care tests. So these are sort of near patient tests that can actually be used, um, you know, by the patient within a surgery at the patient's bedside. So. Taking it further, the Department of Health obviously thought that this was a relatively good thing. There was quite a lot of good feedback from the diagnostics industry, actually. So uh, we work quite widely with a lot of companies trying to help with the development of evidence. So it was funded again. So we bid the other year and we were refunded. So they changed the landscape a little bit. And they changed also the, the sort of re remit, really, of the... So originally we had what we were called DECs, the Diagnostic Evidence Cooperatives, and also the Health Technology Cooperatives had slightly different foci. They lumped them all together, refunded, and now we have what they call these mix, so the NIHR MedTech and IVD Cooperatives. So were this one down here, so the Oxford NIHR... Um, uh, community Healthcare MedTech and IVD Cooperative, so a bit of a mouthful, but again our sort of remit is focusing on diagnostics and technologies that could be used in the, uh, in, in the community. And one of the big things that changed between the two funding schemes was that the first funding scheme had a focus on us working with IVDs that were commercially available, so that's basically things that could be you know, bought by a hospital or a clinic and used, so things that already had a CE mark, so the approval locally. Um, and we always found that a bit restrictive because if you think about it, often by the stage that something's re uh, achieved regulatory approval, it's too late to shape that diagnostic and change how it might work, how it might look, how it might fit into the system. So we found that to be quite frustrating, um, has quite big knock-on effects. But actually what's happened now is we have a bit more of a flexible remit so we can work with companies in the sort of concept stage and work with them right from the base upwards to hopefully generate things which are suitable for the community. So the community, so we're sort of remit really is about guiding management decisions in the community. So we're thinking here about, you know, out of hours here, this doctor up at the top left in your standard GP surgery, um, managing sort of things within the community like, uh, for example, cr uh, chronic wounds, um, ambulatory monitoring of blood pressure could be one example. And we're thinking about these particular tests here. So as I mentioned before, the kind of point of care tests that could be done very rapidly by a patient. Thinking about relatively often very rel uh, relatively simple samples like finger prick blood, um, and the kind of uh, sort of assistance that we've offered as a as a deck and also moving on with the MIC is that sort of the sort of clinical input very early on, health economics input, statistical input, and also imp importantly that's not mentioned here on this slide is the qualitative input. Okay, so exploring clinician and patient uh, you know feelings about diagnostic testing and the knock-on effects potentially. So some of the arguments for point-of-care testing, so these near-patient tests, often we hear this from, from industry, which is faster is definitely better. So if we do something fast at the side of the patient, we can make a really rapid uh, clinical decision and change treatment. Okay, so I'll put a big question mark there because I don't think that's always a positive thing. We'll discuss that a bit later. Could be convenient for patients. So you go in and see your GP, and rather than taking a sample, sending it to the lab, you know, and waiting for a few days, having to call the surgery, get past the receptionist and get a result, you actually get the result then and there. Okay, so that also what follows from that is that the correct patient will get the result. Okay, so if you're on the receiving end of a point of care test, hopefully you're going to receive obviously the right test result at the time. And I think uh, an important context at the bottom is where there's no laboratory. 
So there are contexts, particularly in public health, thinking about the developing world, where there isn't any laboratory infrastructure. So there's nothing to support complex machinery that requires a lot of uh, you know, input from a you know, strong support lab and strong support group. So that's where you're perhaps thinking about point of care or diagnostic services which are standalone and can support themselves, even things that support themselves on battery power. We've seen uh, various examples of that um, during the last couple of years. So there are some big challenges with the community healthcare um, setting. Probably the first one is patient population. So if you think about your GP, uh, people working in the community context, they're exposed to really the full spectrum of the patient population, sort of right from the very young to the elderly, and that brings particular challenges. So you've got this full breadth. Uh, compliance and tolerances to different sampling methods will vary very much. So, you know, obviously it's maybe quite easy to take a venous sample from the lady in the middle, but you're not going to be able to do that necessarily so easily from the baby or from the elderly person, okay? Um, and then also diagnostic performance can differ between patient groups. So what works for a baby won't necessarily work in an elderly person or have the same thresholds, okay? Oh. Right, sorry, back again. The other th challenge really is about prevalence. So generally, if we think about the GP population, uh, so the patients that will uh, come to the GP, you've got everybody coming through the door. So it's a very big, mixed population. And maybe sort of the few people that have a very se serious illness, they're like the needles in the haystack. Whereas often when we think about the context of the acute hospital, this is a population that's usually refined, so often these are people who've been either brought in by an ambulance, they've been referred in by their GP, so our population is a more refined population that we're dealing with. So the diagnostics for the community setting often have to be you know, extremely strong in terms of the accuracy performance that they can deliver, okay, if they're to be of any use. And I think the final thing here, just in terms of challenges, are also people, so the pa these sort of challenges of the, of the clinicians, particularly, and also the patients, what's acceptable for them. So this is a bit of work we did, published in 2016. So we did a, we did a big GP surgery, uh, survey in Britain of about just over a thousand GPs, and we collected some information on what GPs uh, sort of impressions were of point of care testing. And um, you can sort of see on the sort of left hand column here is about facilitators, you know, you see the details, and the right-hand column is about the barriers, and I think it's quite evident that there's a lot of perceived barriers to point-of-care testing from the GP population compared with the facilitators, so some of the facilitators are very, very positive, of course, and we've got things like improved job satisfaction, you might not think of that necessarily, maybe because you can give, you know, you can sort of be ho uh, holistic in terms of your consultation, reduction of referrals, so you're targeting people you send up to the hospital more effectively, and also things like this, so remote practices maybe can improve care. So, you know, we have that within Britain, don't we? If you think about the islands and the highlands of Scotland, for example, there are people who operate in general practice and they're very many miles from an acute hospital. So particular settings where point of care can be positive. But also a lot of barriers. I mean, things like, you know, I mentioned before about the time, you know, one of the comments we had was that sort of obviously point of care test eliminates the time for watchful waiting. So actually, if you're given, you, you know, you do a point of care test, you have a result, you, you know, almost compelled to make a decision right then and there in front of your patient. That might not necessarily be desirable for you. You might want to sit and think about it first. And also a whole sort of raft of things around clinical governance and, and the legal 
sort of uh, uh, you know, p uh, implications of performing point of care tests in general practice in the community. So I mentioned a bit earlier about the emphases for test developers and, and most if you look at uh, the literature that's provided by most point of care manufacturers the sort of the metrics you see in general are around this agreement and accuracy so you probably recognize this uh, people in here who, who know a bland altman plot this is a particularly uh, highly saturated one so this is actually creatinine um, point of care test results that were performed at point of care so this is where um, what the people here have done is actually they've compared um, the point of care test results with the gold standard or the reference standard test, so it's a laboratory analyzer test. So these are actually um, data that came out of the community. So the, the, these were paired blood, blood samples. Some were tested at the point of care by clinicians. The others were sent up to, to the lab at the John Radcliffe Hospital. And uh, we did a bit of a, a comparison. So you often see a lot of this data presented by point of care test manufacturers. So that's the agreement. And then the second thing here is about the accuracy. So how good does you know, is the test at giving a diagnosis or, you know, uh, or actually uh, picking out a particular threshold, okay, sort of uh, for a, a particular disease state or condition. So we see a lot of that. And we also see that along with that data, we get a lot of people who, who sort of, you know, we, we get the pragmatists, people who think that obviously understand that this isn't sufficient um, you know, evidence for the implementation of a test. We get others who are very, very resistant to that idea, and partly sometimes because of this sort of parachute analogy, which is that they believe that the, um, the diagnostic they've developed is absolutely so effective that it's like, you know, uh, essentially it's, it's going to be such, so, so good for patient benefit that it's comparable with the parachute. So, this is a paper that was published uh, by Pell and Smith in 2003. So it was one of the, in the, one of the Christmas issues of the BMJ. So slightly tongue-in-cheek. And what they argued was that there are some medical interventions which are so clear-cut from the outset, they're going to be definitely positive for the patient. Okay, that there's no point doing an RCT, a randomized controlled trial, to actually try and elucidate whether there's a positive patient impact or not. And they're sort of, um, basically they're sort of, uh, so a summary at the end of the paper was that all those people who are strong proponents of RCT should enter themselves into an RCT where they, uh, do, which is basically a randomised uh, placebo-controlled placebo trial of the parachute. Okay, so um, obviously not very many people are going to do that. So we get a few, we get a few, we've had a few companies over time who really think they're onto something like this, but they don't necessarily think about the kind of more nuanced impacts of introducing uh, tests into a, into a patient pathway. So just to give a bit of an overview, so since 2013 we've had kind of a rather large number of uh, consultations with the diagnostics industry. So these have been various point of care tests, people that have come to us to sort of seek a bit of advice. And that's gone right from infection right through to STIs. Okay, so, and the sort of point of note here is that very few of them we've thought actually would have the suitability. So when we've done a sort of, we, when we scrutinise, we thought about uh, what the test might offer in a patient pathway. There are very few that we've actually thought would have a positive impact. Okay, so we've worked with a few, and some of them have gone on and potentially could be very, very positive. But the vast majority, we think, are have some sort of shortfall. And partly that, as I say, is is due to the fact that we were seeing people at the point where they've already got a test that's been that's been approved. 
So in current practice, there are very minimal point-of-care tests available. So this, there's been very poor dissemination and adop adoption in primary care. So hence, the sort of doctor's bag hasn't really changed a whole lot in probably 50 years. So we still see the stethoscope. Obviously, we've got urine dipsticks. Um, a few people these days carry around a pulse oximeter, but there's not a lot else there. So there's not a lot in the uh, primary care doctor's uh, armory um, to use in terms of diagnosis. And I think it's partly because new diagnostic tests can be very, very disruptive to patient pathways and not always in a predictable manner. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about uh, following on from this. Okay, so a bit of a challenge for you, right? Um, so just to sort of think a little bit about this um, before we move on. So a bit of a case study. So this is entirely, uh, this is entirely fictional, but there's a lot of truth in it as well. Okay, so we're going to think about diarrheal disease in rural South Africa. So I've got, uh, my wife is South African and she's got um, an uncle and a cousin who are both GPs up in the north of South Africa. So this is something that they deal with very often. Okay, so we're thinking about a rural GP in the Vembi district, which has a very high caseload of diarrheal disease. So the water supply there is a bit unreliable, so transmission is very, very high. There's also people who use a lot of informal sources of water, so, you know, using streams, the sort of uh, source of water for animals, etc. at times. Um, so the disease that people pick up there is, is attributable to a huge array of bacteria and parasites. So there's a whole bucket load of them that you can pick up. And actually, last time I was there in South Africa, my son uh, was uh, unfortunate enough to pick up one of these as well, and we had to deal with the, the consequences. So in this scenario, local path lab services turn around comprehensive results for stool samples in about 24 to 48 hours uh, at about 80 rands for a sample. Okay. And this guy has been approached by the manufacturer of a new diagnostic test, which is for Giardia intestinalis, which is one of the common parasites there. So it's a very common parasite in the water in, in this region. It's very, very accurate, this test. You get results in about 10 minutes, and it's about 40 rands for a test. So the question is, what is the likely impact of this test? Does anybody have a feeling? Any comments at all? There's no right or wrong answer, really. So, well, there's lots of possible right answers, I think. 40 rands is still a lot of money in that area. It so so uh, the people who probably need it won't have 40 rand. Yes. So, well, I'm thinking more of, so that's a possibility. I'm thinking more of, so, uh, you know, say they've got private health insurance. So say the money to the actual patient's not the issue. What's the, what's the, there's a blindingly big problem with this. Can they get medication to actually treat it if they have? Yeah, so that's a good point. So there is medication for this, metronizadol. You can treat uh, Giardia, so it's, uh, other names, Flagyl, so that's not a problem. Yep. Is there another company that's selling the initial diagnostic test and doesn't want this competitor to get into the market? No, I mean the, the thing is the lab laboratory test is sort of a is not a point of care test, so that's not something you could use in the doctor's surgery. Yeah. It's more to the fact that diarrhea is common, so if you have diarrhea, yeah, um, you have a doctor come and see you. It's likely to possibly be a diarrhea, but so they either treat it thinking it's that, or they do the test, so that either rules it in, in which case that's 40, 40 rand, which is fine. 
or it rules it out, in which case they're still going to have to do the original 80 rand test. Exactly. Okay, so there's a whole, as I mentioned, there's a whole load of parasites and bacteria, bacterial species that can cause this. So you're only ruling out one thing by doing this test. So the high likelihood as you've pointed out, is that you're going to do this test, it maybe comes about negative, you're going to have to do the other tests as well. Okay, I think the other thing as well from a general practice perspective is this number here. Now in Britain that would be a massive problem. I think in the, within the private healthcare system in South Africa it's not such an issue. Yeah, I think uh, it's common, 20 minute appointments are common, but in the public health system there it's very similar to Britain and people are very time limited. Okay, so it's, it's uh, you know, this, the 10 minute turnaround time is not particularly good. Okay, so we'll just move on now. So how do we decide actually if a diagnostic technology is any good and what evidence is required? That's the next uh, question. Okay. So back in 2014, Andrea Horvath, um, they proposed this cycle for evidence that you should try and collect for a diagnostic, okay, this sort of holistic approach. And so we th think of it of a, as a bit of a cycle with the clinical pathway in the middle, okay, so the, so the patient goes along that pathway and we think about the different points where this data is collected. So the top one here we're thinking here is we mentioned before about the analytical performance. So that's how well a test detects a particular analyte. Okay, so that's the sort of thing that you might do in a laboratory under very controlled conditions. The next one here is the clinical performance. So that's how well the device detects the condition or the physiological state. So you know, often with manufacturers, the data they collect on this and that they present in terms of the diagnostic accuracy, they very often do this in the lab as well. And that's a bit of a problem because we know that in context, so where the test is actually used, so by the busy clinicians in the context out in, well, in a public health setting or in a GP surgery, the results can be very, very different. Okay, because people every now and again mess the test up, you know, they might make a mistake. The conditions that they're operating on may be slightly suboptimal, so that has an impact on the results that you get. Okay, the next one, very important, is about the clinical effectiveness. So that's downstream. So by introducing the test, what effect does that have on the outcome for the patient? So does that mean that the, the patient has a better outcome, the same, or does it have a deleterious effect on the patient? Um, the next one along is about whether it's value for money, obviously cost effectiveness of the test. So is there a point, yeah, if we introduce this, is this gonna cost us an absolute fortune and only deliver negligible benefit? Or is it gonna sort of be a negligible sort of cost and a very good patient benefit? And then the sort of rather nebulous thing at the end is this sort of concept of broad impact of the test. So that's things like, for example, does it have an impact on uh, the drugs that are prescribed? You know, how many are prescribed? Does uh, it have a positive impact on the patient's state of mind? What impact does it have on the doctor who's doing the test? You know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a whole sort of big catch-all. So what's the state of evidence for point of care diagnostics? So. Um, Annette, for a number of years, has been running the horizon scanning program within the Diagnostic Evidence Group. And so what this is aimed to do is to produce kind of rapid, short, systematic reports on new developing diagnostics, basically trying to sum up the, the current evidence and also try and picture that particular diagnostic within a pathway within the National Health Service. Okay, so these, well, there's about, at the moment, I think we may ha actually have more than 48 now. I think it's about 48, 49 uh, different reports that you can freely download. So if anybody's interested, they can go to our website. Um, so 
sort of most recent one we did was on Helicobacter uh, pylori infection and point of care testing for that. So it's this kind of um, sort of short short form te uh, short form. Um, publication and some of them have been converted into full publications and picked up by the uh, British Journal of General Practice into these short uh, sort of clinical um, intelligence reports. Um, they've also gone on to inform some health technology assessment programs as well within the NHR, uh, so they've been quite pivotal and important for us. So what did we do? So we had an idea to think about uh, what kind of evidence. So obviously we know there's a bit of a problem with these tests, point of care tests getting through into practice. So we were trying to get an idea of what the issue was with the evidence. So we had our own inklings about what the evidence looked like, but we, we tried to sort of quantify it a bit more. So we took all of the, di uh, all of the uh, horizon scan reports that, um, that Annette had overseen and we did a big data extraction. So we basically looked at all of the primary data uh, sources that had gone into the, all of the different horizon scan reports. We extracted all of those, and then we categorized all of those uh, papers uh, basically into a huge spreadsheet. So several, well, many, many hundreds of papers actually. One of the sort of important things where we were looking for the sample size, we were looking for where the actual test was used, because often um, a lot of these point of care tests were uh, appraised in uh, secondary care, not primary care, so we tried to think about where the actual data came from. And then we also looked to see whether it fulfilled the Horvath sort of cycle, so which, which bit of evidence in that cycle uh, was provided by the particular paper. So we, we did that, and then we did a bit of a data analysis and plotted the data to have a, have a look at what the data profile looked like. And in a way, it was quite gratifying because it confirmed what we'd suspected, which was that we had a huge emphasis on the sort of early stage of the cycle. So the analytical performance data, so that very often the stuff that's carried out in the lab, the clinical performance, but then there was a huge drop away really in the studies that cov covered the clinical effectiveness, the cost effectiveness and the broader impact. And I think what was also interesting was that this was a phenomenon that you could see across the different clinical domains. So we split by cl clinical domain there. You see the different domains at the bottom representing there, so these different colours. And we could see that that, pro that sort of cycle, that profile was repeated across. Okay, so there's a, a sort of basically a huge gulf here of evidence which is sort of potentially lacking uh, for these tests. And uh, interestingly, this is the sort of test profile that's uh, adopted largely by NICE as well. So if you think about NICE evaluation in Britain for diagnostics and technologies, they tend to sort of roughly follow this evidence cycle of Horvath. So the other thing that was interesting was about how people had approached developing evidence. So we also looked at um, the different sort of types of evidence uh, within the cycle and we looked at the sequence in which people had done this. So you kind of almost imagine that people would start with the an analytical performance and then they work around the cycle, okay, from the sort of uh, analytical performance, the diagnostic accuracy assessment through to the impact and right through to the broader impact of the test. But actually it was very haphazard, so in terms of this sort of length of time over which the studies were carried out see that people did it in all sorts of random orders, so not necessarily very logical. Um, and also I think the other important thing here was that we found that this whole cycle, so, so to complete a full uh, evidence cycle for a particular point of care test, took a median time of about nine and a half years. So it's, it's comparable really with drugs. So you think about how long it takes to get a drug through the sort of process of evidence right to the point where it can be approved. It's about nine, ten years time and it's very similar for diagnostic, but, uh, diagnostics, but obviously the, 
the sort of yield in terms of capital for a company is much, much lower, usually for a diagnostic. So the neglected elements, clinical effectiveness, the cost effectiveness, the broader impact, and as I mentioned, so that's all these things like acceptability, social, sort of impact of a test, psychological, so you can think about if somebody has some sort of, uh, you know, point of care test done in the community for some sort of genetic disorder, obviously finding out the result of that is not necessarily going to have a very positive impact on the patient, for example, legal, ethical, societal and organisational, so how these tests fit in can disrupt an organisation financially. Okay. So just going to go through sort of to finish off a couple of case studies. So I've called this sort of un unexpected or less easily predicted impact and unexpected benefit. Okay, so we've got two case studies here to talk through briefly. So the first one is on rapid antigen diagnostic tests for malaria. So um, back in 2010, who, uh, the World Health Organization um, generated a new guidance for, uh, for basically sort of the, um, the prescri uh, prescribing of uh, artemisinin combination therapy for malaria. So um, what they said was that um, they wanted to move away from presumptive prescription. Okay, so they wanted to move away from that to evidence-based prescription by the introduction of these rapid tests. So the rapid test is very much like a pregnancy test. There's lots of different versions of this, cards and these sort of sticks. And essentially what you do is with a patient, you take a finger prick sample, you take it up in a pipette, the bit of blood sample goes into the hole here and then a buffer sample is f uh, added here to flow the sample through. Okay, and then it cr if, the, the, if malaria, the malaria par parasite is present, it cross-reacts here and you get a control line which is some ubiquitous factor from the, from the blood um, and you get another line here to say that the test is positive. Okay, so they're actually very, very, these have been around for donkey's years and they're usually very, very accurate and they're pretty cheap. They're about less than $10. So there is a bit of an issue with that because at the moment, artemisinin in combination therapy is actually a couple of dollars. So you've always got that sort of, when you introduce a diagnostic, you've often got this conflict, which is diagnostics are often relatively expensive compared with the drugs that they're trying to guide. So, but anyway, so who, uh, who decided to make this re uh, recommendation? And so, um, they collected some surveillance data from a number of settings. So there were eight settings in sub-Saharan Africa um, and two in Afghanistan. So they were very, very variable in terms of the prevalence or the incidence of the disease. So you've got areas like this. So this is Uganda in the Great Lakes region. And you can see here on this side, so this is WHO's map. This is where you've got greater than 300 confirmed cases per thousand in the population. So actually, probably most people coming through your door who are febrile, got a temperature, there is a very strong likelihood they're going to have the disease, isn't there? Okay, we're in a situation like that. Whereas at the other end of the extreme, you have places in Afghanistan where incidence is very, very low. Okay, so very, very different settings. So... Okay, so they introduced this and then they followed up to look at the impact of the test. Okay, so they were looking for a whole range of impacts, but there were a couple of important ones. Okay, so they introduced it, um, and so what happened next? Anybody think about what would happen? So they're basically introducing the diagnostic to try and control the prescription of artemisinin combination therapy. So anybody got any thoughts about what might have happened? Yep. Big challenges is that if a patient comes to the clinic and you diagnose them and they're negative for malaria, 
consumption. Yeah. So then could perhaps see that there is no change in the consumption of the combination. Okay, so it's a good point. And you've picked up on something inadvertently. We'll discuss it in a second. So what they found was pretty much across all the sites. So, okay, so on this side, this is the prescription of ACT without the um, diagnostic test. And these are the same sites later with the introduction of the diagnostic test. So pretty much uniformly, they saw that there was a reduction in the prescription of artemisinin combination therapy. So that was kind of one of their goals. They had a bit of a flawed goal as well. I mean, when you read the, read the original guidance, what they said was that they wanted to reduce the use of ACT to try and com combat uh, resistance in plasmodium falciparum. But I think there's a big, big issue with that, which is that you don't drive resistance in an organism by giving drugs to people who don't have the disease. So they were slightly flawed in that respect. But anyway, they, they succeeded in this. So they actually got their ACT um, prescriptions down. And obviously there are other positive benefits of that in terms of, you know, there are side effects associated with these treatments. They're generally well tolerated, but so it's, it's not, not all negative, of course. So what was the next thing that happened? Does anybody think? Back to the gentleman's point at the back. Can everybody have a, a guess? Yep. Yeah, exactly. So they found pretty much across all the sites there was a modest increase in most of the sites in terms of antibiotic prescriptions, exactly as the gentleman there said, which is that you've got a patient in front of you, they're febrile, but they don't have malaria, so what do you do? So, and you're thinking about facilities here that had community healthcare workers. So they don't necessarily have a, an in-depth clinical knowledge. So they're prescribing, you know, they feel under pressure and they want to do something for a patient. So they also found as well, similarly, that there were antipyretics. So there was a slight increase in antipyretic. So things like paracetamol, ibuprofen prescribed for people as well in certain areas. Yep. Were, were they concerned about false negative results of the test? I don't think particularly, because these tests are pretty good. I think that they're sort of, their performance is not quite so good in children as it is in adults. Um, but you would also have found within this group that people would have been presumptively prescribing as well. I think even people who got a, a negative test result would probably have been exercising clinical judgment. So it's not purely based on the result of the test. Okay, so that's that one. So, and another one? is about the instability of serum potassium from primary care samples. So this is another case study. So this is thinking about where a test actually might have a benefit. Okay, so a point of care test. So there's quite a well-documented phenomenon in primary care samples, so samples that come out of the community, which is not seen in hospital samples where there's a lab on site. Okay, and what you see is that there's this temperature dependence. So if you take a, a blood sample from a patient and you send it up to the hospital lab, um, what uh, Sinclair there's quite a number of studies that show this, isn't restricted to this, so this particular paper. What they showed was that um, when the ambient temperature increases, you get a decrease in serum potassium. Okay, so, and this phenomenon you don't actually see in the hospital. So, what, uh, sort of, this is the only bit of basic science we're going to actually have in this uh, talk. So it's to do with really the so the instability of the potassium in the serum of the of the blood sample is down to this phenomenon. So you've got if this is our serum here and this is our red blood cell, you've got a protein on the membrane of the red blood cell which is the sodium potassium ATPase. So it basically moves sodium out of the cell and potassium in. Okay, 
So it sort of helps to maintain the resting, what we call the resting potential of the cell. Okay, so it's part of the sort of homeostatic mechanism. This is temperature dependent. So if you've got a sample that's been transported, potentially over a long distance from a GP practice, the warmer it is, the, the, the sort of more this process is driven, okay, within the sample. So you get this movement of potassium, so loading into the erythrocytes, and then when you actually do a measurement of the serum potassium, it potentially has an effect of lowering the serum potassium, okay, of the sample. And this, actually, this process can be blocked, so pharmacologically you can isolate this by applying a compound called WABE, in which blocks the sodium-potassium ATPase. So this is partly how this sort of mechanism was elucidated. So the relationship's pretty, pretty clear, actually. So this is data that's come out of the John Radcliffe Hospital um, and was provided by a colleague of ours. So what they showed here was the mean weekly temperature in degrees and the serum potassium. So basically, the higher the temperature, the lower the mean potassium levels were in the samples. So you can see that this phenomenon is, um, is, is kind of quite, quite stark, it's quite clear. So this has got potential to have quite big impacts because obviously if you've got a patient who's somewhere near the sort of cusp of being hyperkalemic, so they've got maybe too much potassium in their blood, you know, through this actual phenomenon, you've got the potential where a patient is driven below this line, okay, and that might affect the uh, decision of the clinician to treat or not, or to uh, escalate this person to hospital or not. So it could exert a negative influence on the treat treatment decision. So you could actually have a very negative patient outcome in this circumstance. Um, so, but one of the things with point of care testing, obviously, if you're doing this you know, point of care test on a patient, you're not going to have that issue of transport. So you have much more, you know, much greater stability in the potassium levels in the sample. So it's not something that's a problem. And there are currently a number of plat platforms that, that are available or do this. So actually within the trust at the moment on several sites there are a number of point of care tests that will do a blood potassium, so blood electrolyte. So we don't have this phenomenon, uh, well, so we don't have the problem with this phenomenon within these community settings. So just to summarise, so I think we could probably say, so medical practices aren't actually parachutes. So going back to the sort of original comment about the people being totally convinced that a test is going to have a very positive impact, that's rarely the case because very often it's a lot more complicated than that. And this is actually um, an infographic that was produced by Vinay Prasad over in, uh, in Oregon and his group. So they published a paper and that followed up from the original 2003 paper. And what they did was they, they looked and searched for all of the papers that uh, subsequently referenced the original 2003 uh, uh, parachute paper, they found 35 papers that actually claimed that the practices that they were trying to evaluate were equivalents of the parachutes. So they were so, so clear in terms of their perceived benefit that they were as good as a parachute in terms of risk reduction. So um, 22 of these were actually uh, uh, sort of evaluated by randomised control trial and only six of them came out as being positive trials. Okay, so, so that's from basically 35 different groups being convinced that something was going to be overwhelmingly positive and only six of them came out as positive trials. Okay, so I think the sort of two take-home messages really are that parachute diagnostic interventions don't really exist or are, are extremely unlikely. So it's very vital to consider diagnostic or any kind of diagnostic intervention in the context of the full clinical pathway. So that's why we need to generate this cycle of evidence if we're going to understand the full impact of the test uh, and to achieve successful implementation. 
So just like to acknowledge a few people because a few people who've uh, commented on this and, and provided some bits and pieces and also just to give our contact details if anybody wants to talk to us about this further I'd be very happy to, uh, to discuss. So thank you very much.